The Apostle Paul stands ready to make his third defense concerning the accusations made against him. But this time, something is different. King Agrippa, the man to whom he'll be making his defense, has both a knowledge of the Jews and a standing with Rome. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. While both Felix and Festus were perplexed by the whole matter of the purported crimes brought against Paul by the Jewish leaders, Agrippa would understand to some degree both the charges and the defense. Join Dr. James Boyce as he takes us through Paul's third in a series of hearings that would eventually take him to Rome and the seat of power that would determine his final fate. We're turning to a rather large section of the book of Acts, the account of the appearance of the Apostle Paul before King Herod Agrippa II, which begins in the 25th chapter of Acts at verse 13 and continues the whole way through the end of the next or 26th chapter. It's a section so long that it would seem desirable to divide it, and yet as has been the case in other sections of this book that we've studied earlier, it's a section that clearly belongs together and is therefore best considered as a unit. And so that's what we turn to, to this, the third of the formal defenses of the Apostle Paul before the authorities subsequent to his arrest in the city of Jerusalem. Now this one was before King Agrippa. Agrippa was the grandson of the Herod of the Gospels and the son of the Herod who had arrested Peter. It was not an illustrious ancestry but as one of the historians has said, compared with his predecessors, this man was pretty good. There's not much to say about him, but he was not guilty of some of the atrocities that his father was guilty of, or especially his grandfather was guilty of. True, he was living in an incestuous relationship with his sister, Bernice, which hardly commends him as a model of virtue, but as far as we know, he didn't go around killing people, and there was at least this in his favor. He did understand the situation, which is how he gets into this matter of the trial of Paul. Festus, you'll recall, the new Roman governor, had inherited Paul from his predecessor Felix. Festus was the new kid on the block, there to establish and maintain Roman justice, but he didn't understand the ways of the Jews very much. And here was this man, Paul, in prison, brought there because of accusations made by his own countrymen, which, when he investigated them, turned out to be of such a confusing religious nature that this Roman governor really couldn't understand what it was about. Furthermore, to make matters worse, in the middle of the trial, it was drawing to a conclusion, Paul appealed to Caesar, and Festus maybe somewhat opportunistically seized upon that 
because it got him out of the fix and said, well, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. But you see, here was an accused prisoner that it was now his duty to send to the mighty monarch of the Roman Empire, and what was he going to say in the documentation that necessarily had to accompany Paul to Rome? What was he accused of? After all, why should he bother the emperor of Rome? This powerful, busy man with these religious trivialities which he couldn't even understand himself. Furthermore, the testimony of his predecessor, Felix, before him is that this man had done nothing wrong, nothing that would merit his being put to death. And as he looked at it, it seemed to him that that was the situation also. So what's he going to do? Send Paul to the emperor saying there's no real accusation against him, at least none that we can understand, and besides what we do understand, well, there's just nothing to it that would possibly merit your attention or his death. He could hardly do that. This man, Festus, was really in a fix. Now, it was at that precise moment that King Agrippa and Bernice arrived from their capital to the north at Caesarea to pay their respects to the new Roman governor. Very appropriate thing to do. And Festus, recognizing that here in this descendant of the long lines of the Herods was a man who at least understood something about Jewish law and customs and the spirit of the people, that it was now his responsibility to govern, said to him, Now, I'm glad you've come because we have a man here that has been accused of things by his countrymen, the Jews. They want him put to death, but as we've looked into it, we can't find anything that really merits death. I wonder if you would take time, since you're here in Caesarea, to hear this man and listen to him, and then afterwards you tell me, what, what's this all about, and how can I formulate a letter of accusation to accompany him when we send him off to Rome? And Agrippa said he would be glad to hear Paul, and so the scene is set for this third of Paul's defenses. Now, there was a defense in Acts 22 before the Jews on the steps of the Praetorium there in Jerusalem. That was a Jewish defense, and it was couched in Jewish language. And then there was the defense before Felix, much abbreviated, and that one was before a Roman governor, a Roman defense. Here you have a very unique defense between a man who was on the side of the Jews, and yet at the same time was obviously on very good terms with Rome. It's perhaps because of that that, as Luke tells it here in Acts, he gives this account in the fullest measure. By this time, we, we've heard it a number of times. This is Paul's defense for his life. It's his testimony, and we've seen it historically in Acts 9, where Luke gives the account of his conversion, and then he's told it twice already, and then this is the third time that Paul makes his own defense, and as a matter of fact, later on in Paul's own writings, such as the third chapter of Philippians, we have it again. And we might say at this point, well now, why are we getting this all over again? Haven't we heard it enough? We know what happened. We know the facts. Apparently, Luke thought it was worth repeating, and the testimony that Paul gave on 
this occasion, finally, as we'll recall, before kings, which the Lord Jesus Christ had promised him he would do. As he gave a testimony before kings on this occasion, it's something that we need to hear. Now the setting is worth looking at before we plunge into what Paul says directly. We're told about it beginning in verse 23, and it's to the effect that a number of very important people came together, people that were important in terms of their position and in terms of their power, and that as they came together, they came together with great pomp or pageantry. If I were given to alliterative sermons, you would hear a five-pointer there, the people, the positions, the pomp, the power, and the pageantry. But that is something that Luke, the author, is certainly calling our attention to. Agrippa and Bernice are there, the king and his queen, the governor, Festus was there, the high-ranking officers, the reference here is to the commanders in charge of the cohorts of Rome stationed there in Caesarea. There were five of them at any given time, so there are at least five high-ranking officers of the Roman army present, and then also the leading men of the city. Perhaps some of them retired military personnel, but most of them merchants, those who would have money and be in positions of great authority. All these important people came together. All of the powerful people were present, and as they collected, they did so with great pomp. The word is used there in verse 23, and undoubtedly with great pageantry, which is what it's referring to. It's an interesting scene, isn't it? Here are all the important people of the world with all their power and all their pageantry arrayed on one side, and here on the other side, brought out perhaps without even much warning or opportunity to prepare a defense, this little Jew from Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, as he looks up into the faces of the mighty. What a lopsided contest. All of the power, all of the position, all of the pomp, and here is Paul. There's an interesting thing. Sometimes, I, I often say you don't have to know Greek to understand the Bible, and you don't even have to know it to preach it. Don't tell the professors in the seminary that I said that, but uh, it's true all the same. But sometimes it helps a great deal, and it does help here in reference to this word pomp that I've referred to several times. In the Greek language, it's the word fantasia. It's where we get our word fantasy, and the idea, you understand it, when I begin to show how the word developed is that which is light and fleeting and passing, that which is of a moment only. I don't know, because of course that was the word Luke had to use, I don't know whether he had this in his mind, but he probably did, and at any rate, we can hardly escape it, that all of these important things of the world, all of the position and the power and the pageantry are only passing things. When you see them in history at any given moment, it would look like that is what's stable. What could be more stable, more impressive, more weighty than the Roman Empire and those who represented it here in Judea? And yet, says Luke, all fantasies, all things that are going to pass away, and it did pass away. The Roman Empire passed away. All of the people here passed away. And the pageantry, the pomp, passed away even before that. It didn't even last out the day. They took down the flags. They all went home. It was all over. But you see, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to which the apostle Paul was called to bear a witness, prevailed. 
And it prevailed not only on that day, because it was the truth and it was spoken, it prevailed in the decade to come and the decade after that, and the century that followed, and the millennium after that, and that gospel of Jesus Christ is here with us in power today, and Rome is just a memory. And I think along those lines, I think of that great verse in Rudyard Kipling's Recessional of 1897, the tumult and the shouting dies, the captains and the kings depart, still stands thine ancient sacrifice, a humble and a contrite heart, Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. Well, the Apostle Paul was not about to forget. The Apostle had been called by God, and he knew it. He had been given a commission, and he understood his commission, and so he wasn't about to be overpowered by the power of the pageantry. And he began to tell his story. Now, we are aware already of how he did it whenever he told it historically. Generally, it had three parts. It was his life beforehand in Judaism. He talks about that in verses 4 through 11. He next tells of his conversion and his commission to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He discusses that in verses 12 through 18. And then finally, in a somewhat new and interesting way, he tells about his Christian witness, that is, after having received his commission, where he went, what he did, and what it was his habit to say. And he talks about that in verses 19 and following. Now let's just look over it. We tend, as we come to this, to say, well, we've heard a lot of this before, and it's true, we have. Yet Luke is repeating it. He's obviously repeating it for our benefit, so let's look at it again as he desires us to do. Paul talks about his life in Judaism. And what he is concerned to stress here is that he was a faithful Jew. He received the traditions of his fathers, he knew the law, and so far as he knew, he lived by them. Moreover, he lived by them according to the strictest sect of the religion of his day. He was a Pharisee. We've talked about it before. We have a bad view of the Pharisees because of some of the things Jesus said about them. He called them hypocrites, whited walls. He called them sepulchers with paint on the outside and dead men's bones, corpses within. And that is true. Many of them were. That, as a matter of fact, is a description of the race. We are all like that. And yet, in their day, the Pharisees had a good reputation because they were what we would call, let's call it by its right name, they were the fundamentalists. They were the evangelicals of their day. They're the ones who said, we believe in the inerrancy of the Bible and everything that is written there, we believe. And they really did, at least so far as they understood it, and so did Paul. Paul's defense at this point has to do with the fact that the only things he proclaims are the things that were in the law, well understood by all the Jews of his day, at least those that believed the Old Testament scriptures. You say, well, what does that involve? He says the chief thing, you see, is the promise of the resurrection. He interrupts his address at this point to say, he does it very wisely, why should you consider it incredible that God should raise the dead? No doubt, we're going to see later on in the story, his Gentile hearers did consider it incredible. And people do consider it incredible today. But Paul was a Jew in this respect, raised in the Scriptures, and the Pharisees at least, though they had modernist liberals in their day in the body of the Sadducees, but the Jews 
as a whole, and the Pharisees in particular did at least believe in the supernatural. So he says, that's where I came from. And all the Jews, if they were here and if they were willing to testify about it, could say that in those days I was at least a model Jew. And I understood in those days, as they still think it their duty, that what I needed to do was persecute the Christians and stamp them out because this doctrine of theirs centered in the Messiah, as they called it, this man Jesus, was contrary to Judaism. But then he tells about his conversion. And it's the same sort of thing which, in our own ways, each of us ought to be able to claim if we have truly met Christ. He said, I was on the way to Damascus, and this very one about whom the Christians had been preaching, but whom I had regarded as a blasphemer, a liar, a deceiver, this very Jesus stopped me cold on the way to Damascus to persecute the Christians. And he made himself known to me. He asked me why I was fighting against the goads, no doubt the pricks of conscience, and I had nothing to say. I said, who are you, Lord? And he explained who he was. He said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You know, in the history of religion since that day, there have been a number of attempts to explain what actually happened to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, eliminating the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, now risen from the dead, actually appeared to him. Some have said quite seriously that Paul probably had epilepsy. And here on the road to Damascus, he had an epileptic fit. Some have said, well, the sun was bright. It was in the heat of the day. He mentions that here. No doubt he had a sunstroke. Well, I think of those things, and I remember what Harry Ironside says when he deals with those arguments in his collection of sermons on the book of Acts. He said, if that's what epilepsy accomplishes, let's all have epilepsy because it turned a man who was a persecutor into a servant of God and a witness to Jesus Christ. He said, if that's what sunstroke causes, let's all have sunstroke, because that's what we need. And then I guess in a bit of whimsy, Ironside said, and you know, I'm really willing to admit that a sunstroke is exactly what he had as long as you spell it S-O-N instead of S-U-N. He was struck by the Son of God. Have you been struck by the Son of God? Has he stopped you where you are? You may not have been engaged in a career of persecuting Christians. Maybe you were just engaged in a career of serving yourself and turning your back upon God. Did the Lord Jesus Christ stop you on that Damascus road? Did he turn you around? The Apostle Paul was turned around and he could testify to it. And if the Lord Jesus Christ has stopped you and turned you around, then you can testify to it. If you're not testifying to it, or if you feel you can't, then you need to examine yourself and see whether you really have met Jesus. You say, well, I know a great deal about him, and after all, I'm here in church, and where could I hear better preaching than here at the 10th Presbyterian Church? Ah, oh, you won't get by me with your flattery. The question is not, do you know about Jesus, but have you met Jesus? Has Jesus stopped you where you are? Has he turned you from your sin? Has he revealed himself to you, and have you come to trust him? The Apostle Paul had, and it made all the difference. 
Well, the third part of this defense before King Agrippa has to do with his service for Christ following his conversion. He stresses a number of things here, and they're things that we can each apply to ourselves, although in different ways. First thing he stresses is his obedience, though he couches it in the negative, verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. One of the first marks of our conversion is that we obey Jesus Christ. One might even say the first mark, except faith as a result, and perhaps that proceeds, though the two obviously are linked. Are you obeying Jesus? Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? If you are disobeying him, you're not his disciple. If you're not his disciple, you're not saved. If you've met him, well, you've heard his voice, and people who have heard the voice of Jesus Christ just do not ignore it. You really heard it. He's the master. He's the king. He tells you what to do. You must be obeying. Paul was. Secondly, he talks about the scope of his ministry, and as he talks about it, what he really indicates here is that it widened and widened as God worked through him to reach others. He began in Damascus, verse 20, it's where he was converted, and so he gave his first witness there. Then in Jerusalem, which is where he went next, then to Judea, and then finally to the Gentiles also. Isn't it interesting, here in the 26th chapter of this book, after we've been through all these stories of the expansion of the gospel, that we find the Apostle Paul describing his ministry, the sphere of his ministry, in almost the same terms that the Lord Jesus Christ first spoke when he was giving a charge to the disciples even before Pentecost. The first chapter of Acts, verse 8, says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That is what Paul was doing. Why? Because he was obedient to the Lord. And that is precisely what the Lord Jesus Christ said his people are to do. The third thing he says when he talks about his service to Christ following his conversion is that he preached the gospel. And I want you to see the terms in which he talks about this. Paul, of course, is presenting the gospel here in the context of his own life story to these important people who are listening. This is a device. It's a way in which he wants to preach Christ to them. But notice how he says it. Verse 23, all he preached is what the prophets had already said would happen, and which had happened, namely, that Christ would suffer, that is, he would die. There is a testimony to the atonement. Jesus, by his death, suffered for our sin. And secondly, that he would rise from the dead, and that is what had occasioned all this turmoil. And then thirdly, that being risen from the dead, he would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles, undoubtedly through witnesses like the Apostle Paul and others. That's the gospel. You say, well now, that's the gospel, but what is our response to it to be? And he gives that as well. He says, when he preached to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent, number one, and number two, turn to God, and number three, prove their repentance by their deeds. Repentance means to turn around. You're going in one direction, and you turn around and go the other direction. It's the equivalent of conversion, which means the same thing. 
That's what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. He was set in one way and God turned him around and he went in another way. And that's what needs to happen to everyone who would find salvation in Christ. But at the same time, turning from our way, turning from sin and going in the other way means turning to God. And that's the second thing. Christianity is not just negative. It's not just stop sinning. It's not just abandon your current lifestyle. Christianity is above all a positive thing, and it means find righteousness in Christ and find a lifestyle in Him. Something not only different but better. Turn to God. And then, as Paul also says, it's interesting to find it here, that as he preached the gospel, he also said, lest there be anything like cheap grace or easy repentance or mere verbal profession, he said, proof that it's happened by doing good works. How do you know if you're a Christian? Do you know it simply because you can mouth the right things? Well, hardly. You can fool yourself into mouthing almost anything. Oh, you know it when your life has changed and when you begin to do good works. That's the proof of it. When you begin to follow after Jesus Christ, when you obey him, when you do what he told you to do. If that's the case, then this is the most radical thing that could possibly be proclaimed. You know, as long as Paul was merely speaking here of his life and of what Festus and King Agrippa might conceivably regard as merely religious ideas, or as Festus said, philosophy, well, who cares? Whatever is proclaimed. Nobody cares much about philosophy. But if you're talking about a gospel centered in a risen Lord, someone who lived in history, was crucified, and rose from the dead, and now commands his followers to turn from sin to God and to do works of righteousness, well then, that is radical. And that, of course, is what stirs the opposition. It did on this occasion. Paul didn't even get to finish, though no doubt he was near the end of his address. Festus, who had been listening all this time, this Roman governor, interrupted and said, Paul, you are out of your mind. He had never heard anything as crazy as that in his life. I guess he'd be willing to hear Paul talk about a resurrection at some far-off future day if that's conceived metaphorically as the fact that, well, maybe in the afterlife we have to answer for our deeds. Even the pagans had some sense of retribution in that respect. But you see, Paul wasn't talking about that. Paul was talking about a present resurrection, a resurrection that had happened in history that had made all the difference in his life and had to make a difference in the lives of those who met Jesus Christ. And that was absolutely intolerable to Festus and incredible as well. You must be crazy, Paul. He said, nobody can believe that or live by that in this world. And so he dismissed the gospel and perished because of it. And then Paul, who all along had been addressing Agrippa, turned to him. He does a very neat little transition here, replying at the start to Festus, but quickly switching over to Agrippa, saying the king, that is King Agrippa, is familiar with these things, and so I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa? Now this is preaching for life change. King Agrippa, he said, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. 
You're acquainted with what Moses says in the law. You know what the later prophets have written. You understand these things. And furthermore, this was not done in a corner. All of this that concerns Jesus of Nazareth has come to your hearing. You know the testimony to his resurrection. You believe those things. I know you do. But you see, King Agrippa still had his position to worry about. With Festus, it was, I suppose, the pride of intellect. How could any Roman governor believe in anything as crazy as a literal resurrection? But with Agrippa, it wasn't that. Agrippa probably believed in the resurrection. But with him, it was his position. He just couldn't humble himself. He who was the king and, and come down like anybody else to receive Jesus Christ as Savior, confessing himself a sinner, turning from his sin to God. And so he dodged it. He was put on the spot, embarrassed, no doubt, before the governor. And what he said was, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And he rose and left. And like the governors, he perished without Jesus. The point of all that is that that is precisely what men and women do today. When this supernatural gospel of a crucified but risen Savior is proclaimed, a gospel that demands that we turn from sin to God and begin to show our conversion by good works, the world puts up barriers and rejects it for precisely these reasons. Pride of intellect? I couldn't possibly believe in anything like that though it's not at all incredible, as Paul says, that God should raise the dead, or pride in position. Why, to do that, I would have to abandon all this status that I have, and I'd have to become like those Christians. Isn't it true? If you're not a Christian, you look into your own heart that those are the things that keep you from bowing your knee before Jesus Christ, pride of intellect or pride of position. And yet, the intellect passes away and the position passes away. All these things fade. But what did Jesus say? He who does the will of my Father abides forever. Everybody wants to last. Everybody wants to be around when it's all over. Jesus says the way to do that is by joining yourself to me. I'm the eternal one. I died for you that you might have eternal life. What you must do is turn from your sin. You must believe in me. And then you enter into a life which is not only blessed now, though there may even be suffering connected with it, not only blessed now, but a life which is going to be infinitely blessed beyond the grave, and all that you see, everything you see, will have passed away. You know, the Lord had a way of putting it very strongly, and he said, I hope you'll think about it, what does a man profit if he gains the whole world now and yet loses his soul? Let's pray. Our Father, we know the difficulty, we see it in ourselves, and we certainly understand it in the lives of those who have not yet found Jesus. It's the difficulty of trying to evaluate these things when the only criteria we have in our sin 
are the world's criteria. We want power and prestige and pomp and pageantry and position. And on the other side, what we see is a crucified Savior. But our Father is the Savior, and He is the Lord, and He is God. And when all of these other things that we think are so important have passed away, Jesus will remain, and so will those who are united with Him. You are the Spirit of truth. Do speak to the hearts of those who listen, that they might find the truth. And in finding the truth, might also find grace to turn from their sin to Jesus. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening to this message from the Bible Study Hour, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of believers that hold to the historic creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. To learn more about the Alliance, select the appropriate link at thebiblestudyhour.org. Write to us at 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. Your financial support makes our broadcasting, publishing, online, and event ministries possible. Please consider making a gift at our websites by phone at 1-800-488-1888 or by mail. Canadian listeners can reach us at P.O. Box 24097, RPO Josephine, North Bay, Ontario, P1B0C7. Thank you for your prayers and gifts and for listening to the Bible Study Hour, preparing you to think and act biblically.